This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of East Screen West Screen. This is episode 45 for Wednesday, October 20th, 2010. As usual, I am your host Paul Fox and joining me from some island here in the Fragrant Harbor is the man known as the Golden Rock, Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi everybody. How's it going, Kevin? Well, uh Paul, have you looked at the weather lately? Yeah, it's kind of hard to miss. We got a Yeah. A super typhoon coming. Yeah, it looks like it uh, literally is a super typhoon. I mean, I thought that was only something that's in a Chinese disaster movie. But uh, no, it looks looks like it's it's for real. Yeah, they're saying that this could be uh, signal number 10. Now, I've been here for a couple signal number 8s, but I haven't experienced a 10 as yet. So this will be something new for me. I think we definitely had a 10 um, during the Olympics. Uh, three years ago, I think we had a 10 where... Um, uh, where I was listening to the news, and they literally said at one point, the storm's eye is now passing over Tuen Moon. Yeah. That, I think I was in the States when that one came through. Ah, uh, lucky man. Yeah. yeah, that was that was pretty big. Yeah, so, well, hopefully it won't uh, it won't do too much damage as it blows blows over. You know, we always hear stories of... I mean, apparently this thing went through the Philippines, and a couple people died uh, because of it, so... Yeah, knocked over like the roof of a gas station. Um, yeah. But what I'm worried about is that this weekend we got the the opening of the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Um, so I'm not sure what the the theaters are going to do about showings, but I am not going to go out there on a signal number ten. So um, sadly, I might be forced to miss a few movies if this thing does hit directly. Yeah. Well, usually it um, it, it's not uncommon when there's a signal number eight for the cinemas to keep going and people to go out and watch movies. But mm-hmm. I think if it is signal number 10, things actually shut down, don't they? I'm not sure. I remember, you know, when the storms hit, um, a few stores opened, and I think a theater stayed open, but I'm not sure what happened during the 10 because it was so, you know, I didn't need to go out, you know what I mean? So I didn't really, really, uh, really check. Yeah, well, we'll just have to hunker down, pop in a DVD of Super Typhoon, and ride out the storm. You know it. All right, but we're not here to talk about uh, Typhoon Meggy, or Mega, as it probably should be called. Uh, we're here to talk about movies. Movies from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. And we've got a few films to talk about this week, and uh, not too much news. But before we get to our films, let's talk about the little bit of news that we do have. So for our East Screen news this week, uh, up first, a little bit of news coming from Film Asia, uh, Film Biz Asia, excuse me, and that is the uh, sequel to the film If You Are the One by Feng Xiaogang. Um, it has a release date set. It'll be opening on uh, December 22nd in China, and this film stars Gayo and Xu Qi, who are the, were the characters from the first film. And I'm kind of excited. I really like the first film, so I'm looking forward to seeing the sequel. Um, but from what I remember of the first film, I, it doesn't seem like a film that would lend itself well to a sequel. I mean, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on this, Kevin? Yeah, um, I thought the film by itself, the first film by itself, was pretty complete. Um, told a complete story, and um, I'm not sure where else they could take the second film. I mean, what I've, what I've heard is something about the two characters uh, getting married or something like that. Most of the film actually is, unlike the first film, it's actually shot in one location. So the first film is about um, this 40-something year old who goes around China, different big cities, and also to Hokkaido, 
um, to pursue love. But this film, I believe, uh, I think they shot most of it um, at a seaside area. So it might be considerably different from the first film. Um, I did like the first film, so I'm looking forward to see what Feng Xiaogan has in mind for the second film. Um, but with that said, I mean, Feng Xiaogan, I did not like Aftershock, and I'm not sure if he's going to be riding on that type of storytelling. Yeah. This is a romantic comedy, so there's not really nothing to offend. I yeah, suppose. It says the film's set in uh, Hainan Island, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if it's going to be like a you know, uh, the characters have a breakup and then, you know, it's a whole break up and get back together and break up and get back together kind of a scenario. Um, I'm glad that, you know, both of the leads are in it, but I don't know, you know, sometimes sequels just don't need to be made. And I keep thinking, is that the case? Because I ended up liking the first one so much, I'm afraid I'll be a little bit disappointed. Um, yeah, the thing is about Goyo, you know, she's a perfectly attractive star and, you know, she's fine for Mighty Colony, but Goyo isn't you know Goyo, the whole point of the first film is that you know you got this not so attractive guy but really witty guy who goes around and can't meet the right person so you know now we're supposed to buy you know these people are supposed to stay together you know based on you know a story that we usually see really handsome people in or pretty people in it's easier to buy but when you have you know a star like Goyo trying to do this whole romantic comedy back and forth on and off relationship thing I don't know if I really, really want to watch this. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing that really worked in the first film was a lot of the humor was generated by him going around on these, you know, sort of internet dates and meeting these women and and his sort of very blunt and honest way of, you know, dealing with these people he'd never met before. But now it's all going to be sort of stuck and regulated with um, with the main character, Shu Chi, I'm assuming, Unless it's a, they go through a period of breakup and he goes on further dating or, or something, so it seems like it's going to be um, quite a quite a different experience from the first film. What's our next news, Kevin? Next piece. Well, these are kind of promotional uh, shout out things uh, we've got going. Um, this weekend, you've got the uh, Hong Kong. Well, I'll first explain the forty eight hour film project. What it is is that. Um, there's a, a, a certain number of teams in a city. They join this contest and they all start making a film within 48 hours in a time period. So let's say you've got 10 teams and then those 10 teams all go around the city during a 48-hour period and shoot a write, shoot, and edit, essentially complete an entire short film. So the Hong Kong uh, contest uh, was uh, held this past weekend here in Hong Kong. Um one of my friends is a director at one of the teams. Um, last year, we had a, a mutual friend who actually acted in, acted in one of the award-winning films. So um, they, they, they just had this, uh, the contest this past weekend, and the screening will be this weekend um, at the Grand Cinema. Um, fingers crossed the typhoon doesn't cancel it. Um, so just a little shout-out. Um, anyone here in Hong Kong um, have time on Saturday, or if they do delay it, whenever they delay it to, um, check out, probably gonna, hopefully gonna put up a link, um, just check out the link, buy a ticket, and go check out some, you know, see what people can do within 48 hours. Yeah, the, you can find the link in the show notes, and, uh, yeah, give it a, give it a look if you have a chance. And, he, okay, so the second thing I'm trying to push is that, um, Squatter Town, we've, we've talked about this before, uh, by Mr. Spomberg, who listens to the show weekly, so, um, a little high here, um, it is in the final half month of its uh, fundraising project. Um, they're not all there yet, although uh, a good a good amount of the, the funds have been raised. Um, I have been working on sort of promotional stuff for it, including their weekly, his weekly Sheriff Lobo um, uh, pictures. Uh, that I've been working on the captions with him. Uh, I've been a little involved in the project, although um, I'm not sure where I'll be um, in the production stage. But anyway, this is the last month, uh, the last two weeks of the fundraising process. So anyone who really wants to be directly, directly influenced the way a Hong Kong made film, uh, who wants to be involved in a Hong Kong, Hong Kong film, now is your chance. Um, check out Squatter Town. Um, Mr. Spomberg is a, he knows what he's doing, I think. He's a talented filmmaker, although he won't, he won't admit it. Um, really check out this project. Uh, you won't regret what he makes. 
All right, let's move on to our East Screen films for this week. This week we have two films, one from Hong Kong and one from Japan. Up first, The Child's Eye. Now, Kevin, you have not seen The Child's Eye. Is that I correct? Have not. You have not. That's right. I so have you not. have missed out on the first full-length feature 3D film or of, from Hong Kong. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the plot since you haven't seen it. I'll try to avoid any spoilers because I know you're dying to go out and see this. You know it, man. Yeah. Yes. Um, so basically, it's Bangkok, six young kids on vacation, and they find themselves stranded at an airport because of the, uh, you know, the Thai riots. So this is taking place. Uh, what was it? A year. Two years ago, when Thailand was, you know, in the midst of the riots, and you had uh, some of the some of the groups going in and sitting in at the airport and sort of shutting things down, so this film is sort of set during this uh, factual historic period. So the kids are stuck; they can't get back to Hong Kong. They get in a cab with a driver. Driver ends up dropping them off at a place called the Chung Thai Hotel, which is run by uh, Lam Katong, who's a uh, Hong Kong actor that, you know, you might recognize from some films. I think the one that always stands out in my mind is uh, uh, Dance of a Dream. Uh, but he's been in other stuff. And the main character is a Rainy Yang, who I think she was in Spider Lilies. Um, yeah, she's a Taiwanese pop star. Yeah, um, I, my, the first time I encountered her is in the 2001 film Merry-Go-Round. Um, not to be confused with, I think there's another Merry-Go-Round uh, that's playing... Now, isn't there? Uh, come, is a closing film with the Hong Kong Asian film. Yeah, it's a different film. This is a film from 2001. I think the script was by uh, G.C. Gooby, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. And I really liked that film, and I really liked her character. She played this uh, character, Carla Lily, as kind of innocent, um, naive young girl, first love kind of story. Really, really good. I uh, thought she had a lot of potential at that time. She's here, and she crushed that image <laughs> for me. <laughs> All the potential disappeared. Um, so basically, she and her friends get stuck at this rundown hotel, and she believes she's starting to see uh, ghosts. Her friend, played by Elaine Kong, uh, she thinks she's seeing like hands hovering in the middle 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 of the air, trying to grab her. Um, and they're with their boyfriends. Um, the, the, of note is basically a Sean Yu, who's Rainey's boyfriend. Um, and the boys end up disappearing, and so it's up to the girls to find out what has happened to them in this mysterious, spooky hotel. And, you know, as they explore the hotel, they find there's strange things going on, and they have strange encounters, and all of this is happening in the wondrous technology that we know as 3D. Isn't that great? Um, well, no, not really. Uh, in fact, it's somewhat disappointing, particularly considering that uh, this is the Pang Brothers, the same Pang Brothers who gave us the eye, which was not that long ago. Um, and they've since really gone downhill. And, you know, I keep I keep wondering if the Pang Brothers are like the Hong Kong version of M. Night Shyamalan, you know, where they started off really strong and they've just gotten worse ever since. Um, because the eye was, you know, it it was so different when it came out in its approach to doing scares and to, and as a horror film. Um, and and to presenting ghosts that were really different in terms of the way they were presented in like the very traditional green light ghosts from Troublesome Night and, and those kinds of things. Um, you know, they, they had ghosts come out in the daytime and they were able to do it because of some of the technological advances of the time. And they really played with the medium. I remember, I think I've talked about this before, in the opening sequence, in the credit sequence of The Eye, uh, in the cinemas, they had this thing happen where the film seemed to break, you know, and everybody turned back and, you know, when the film breaks, you all look back at the projection booth and, you know, start to him and haw and hopefully the projectionist is paying attention and he fixes the film. But that was all staged. It was all set up. It was actually part of the film. And then this face sort of jumps out as the white light is showing um, and scares everybody jumps. And it was a great way of them playing with the medium and playing with, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, using a, a jump moment to, to capture them. But a lot of what they did in the eye that was scary wasn't based on loud noises and jump moments, which are sort of the traditional methods of scaring people. And I don't like those methods. Um, I find them very annoying, and I find them a little bit lazy. And that's what they do here. That's how they scare you most of the time, is with those, uh, 
um, those standard sort of jump moments, quick edits, loud noises. So it's a little, it's quite disappointing. I was, I was really hoping that this would be something new and, and they'd be playing with the medium again because here they're using 3D and they never really do anything, you know, surprising or innovative with the technology. Um, in terms of the narrative, the narrative is where, where the big problem is. I mean, technically, the 3D usage is, is really kind of good. I mean, you can, um, you know, some of the cinematography is really nice. Um, the, the, the way they use 3D is not really innovative, but you're always looking. And because you've got sort of this depth because of the 3D, your, your eyes are like not really focused on the characters, but always looking around them to see if something's out of place. But in terms of the narrative, the film is really illogical. It never really explains why this group of kids are having these experiences. Um, it's not it's not as smart as the eye when the reasons are found out. It's like it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. There are there are the Thai riots that happen are actually really good. There's some really good cinematography and some recreation, and the attention to detail in what's going on. It is really kind of nice, and I almost kind of want to watch a movie about that rather than this ghost story that's going on. Um, and of course, the, you know, one character, the main character, has this book called "The Law in Hell," and it's you know she happens to be reading about you know certain rules for ghosts and things, and if you do certain things, there'll be certain consequences, and then those consequences just happen to be the same consequences or things that are going on. Or, or supposedly responsible for the strangeness that's going on in this hotel. So it's just really, really weak in terms of what the plot's setting up. And the, the characters, uh, even the main character, Rainey, um, who's basically got the same name as the actress. So that shows you how much depth they really go into with the characterizations. Um, there are overly long scenes of tension. You know, these, these scenes where the camera's just looking over the shoulder and something's going on behind the character, and it's slowly building up tension, and then, oh, that thing that was behind the character is now gone, and then, oh, wait, it's on the other side now, and boom, big loud noise, and you're scared. You jump. Um, too, way too much of that going on. There's a, there's a whole sequence towards the end that looks like it was leftover footage from Recycle. It's like all this huge, elaborate CGI sequence um, that's supposed to be representative, I guess, of a ghost world sort of a paper ghost world, which is kind of interesting, but it actually looks kind of cheap, um, cheaply done in comparison with some of what they presented in Recycled. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of like Recycled from Recycled. <laughs> and um, there's just other nonsense. Um, you know, there's a... I, again, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but there's a scene where, the, the, the you know, the girls are looking for the boys. They The character finds the boys at one point, and... They're tied up by the ghost, right? Who knew that ghosts use rope to tie up humans? <laughs> I mean, it's just things like that. They don't. They there's a lot of nonsense going on. Um, there's a really long montage reveal at the end that basically says, "Okay, yeah, this is what happened." You know, so the thing, the things that it tries to build up and have you believe, um, it's one of those that kind of reveals everything at the end with a five minute sequence. Um, I would give this film points, though, for, again, being the first true Hong Kong film that's all in 3D. I, I kept checking at points, taking off my glasses to see, well, oh, you know, this is kind of a boring scene. Nothing's happening here. They're all just sitting around a table eating noodles. Is that in 3D, really? And, yeah, you know, it, it was. So it wasn't a case of, like, true legend where it was only certain scenes were in 3D. The whole thing was in 3D. Um, so they were really trying to apply the technology. I'd also give them points and I guess this will be a little bit of a spoiler, but for not going the China-friendly route. Um, so if you think back to um, Curse of the Deserted, the review that uh, Ross gave us a couple weeks ago, um, also sort of a Sean Yu vehicle ghost film, and he talked a little bit about how you know they, they got this by to be able to play in China. Uh, the Pang Brothers didn't really do that here. Um, unless they created an alternate version that I don't know about, which is a possibility. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I, it, it's just a standard ghost film. It's nothing really that exciting. The narrative's really lazy, really bland, uh, some cheap scares. And then it builds to this ending that just makes you go, what the heck? You know, why did I just spend 
90 minutes watching that if this is this is the ending. Um, uh, I, I do have to say there were a couple of good characters. There's a character um, who's like um, a girl in Thailand who speaks uh, very good Cantonese, and I guess she, you know, she's able to communicate with uh, with the kids basically. But she's like a younger girl. She's I guess they're not really kids; they're like young adults. But this this girl is a is a young kid uh, her, who's named uh, Man Man. And she has this ghost-seeing dog named Little Wong, Su Wong. And the dog can see ghosts. And he's just the most awesome canine of any Hong Kong film to date. And I'm including um, the old film, Every Dog Has His Date. I mean, this dog, <laughs> this dog deserves an acting award <laughs> more than anybody else in the film um, for what he's doing. So kudos to uh, Su Wong. And yeah, it's it. The film's called "The Child's Eye." It doesn't really make sense. They should have called it "The Dog's Eye." Um, Maybe the dog's a kid. Is it, uh, is dog well, sh- yeah. That, <laughs> again, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but uh, uh, yeah, you could have called it "I See Dog People." <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, not a very good film. If you're a Pang Brothers fan, this is really down there. Um, this is like I ten level. Um, more so than the other stuff they've done. So, you you know, if you can catch it, I'd say, you know, give it a shot, but you might just wait for it to be on video and borrow it from somebody. How they're going to do this as video, though, that's the real question, because it is in 3D. A lot of the effects that it's doing, the scares that are doing are sort of generated for 3D. I think on video, it's really going to lose that, and it may come across as even worse without that. Um, maybe that's why they're relying on the theatrical growth and probably foreign sales to make its money back. They, I mean, they know that it's not going to make much money on home video. And um, I think the budget of this film was about $30 million And, you know, I don't think they have to worry about the China market. Uh, the Peng brothers have never been really China-friendly filmmakers anyway. Um I'm pretty sure that's because they have a contract with the company they're working with, Universe. All their films have been in Universe. And, you know, the the word on the street, I suppose, is that the Penguin is essentially stuck in this contract. So they keep, and I think the, the, the company that they work under essentially demands that they make a ghost from every once in a while and then they can go off and make their own solo stuff. That's why when they're off in solo, you see much more interesting work by the brothers, like uh, the detective or... Um, or uh, something like Leave Me Alone, or uh, or Trick or Tre- I wouldn't say well, at least it's, it's something that's not horror, you know, Trick or Treat, Trick or Cheat, things like that. With non-horror stuff, essentially, but when they're back together, I suppose um, that a contract requires them to make a ghost film every couple of every couple of films. So this feels like one of those um, contract fulfillment movies yeah. where they can one also you know do something new work of new technology but also fulfill the contract and that's why i'm not really surprised that the script's getting a little lazy for their for their horror yeah, films really lazy and i mean we joked last week that this is another film that's got i in it as like that's their calling card but it's just really really lazy and uh you know the, the characters are just not that interesting you, you don't really care sean you i mean after we the, the film we talked about last week um reign of assassins who, who Sean Yu was also in that, and I mean he had a smaller role, considerably in that film, but it, his character was interesting in that. I mean what he did with it, and I you know I don't want to necessarily attribute it to him or the director, but you know that was a that was a pretty solid role that he had. And I looked at him in this, and I'm just thinking, he's too good for this. You know he mm. he doesn't need to be put up with you know the likes of these young up and coming starlets. He he's done his time. And he's done, you know, solid, credible work. And I think one of the guys, was, I, I think one of the guys in the group was saying, you know, well, he needs to pay the bills. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I can understand that. But doing these kinds of things is not helping his career at all. It's, it's just paying the bills, you know. I mean, unless he's aiming to be sort of the Michael Caine of Hong Kong cinema in the future. <laughs> I think it's very, very few Hong Kong stars actually has, have the luxury to choose roles. Uh, very few Hong Kong stars think of... Uh, long-term reputation i mean it only works if you if you if you act in one kawaii movies you know yeah. like maggie churn or or tony learn where you're already exposed to the national market and you have you have the luxury to think about oh what am i going to be known as long-term do i get to choose my script very few actors get to do that in hong kong um 
Sean Yu's the actor that's worked with the the Pang brothers. Um, I'm guessing you know he's he's someone that works with them you know enough that the Pangs would like to choose the same actors or actors they're familiar with. So you see a lot of uh, repeating actors, Elaine Kong to an extent. Um, Joe Koo, Joe Koo uh, is in the film, I've been told. Yes, yes. Um, and Sean Yu, um, things like that. And, you know, sometimes there's contracts, sometimes there's management. You know, when you're an, act, when you're an actor, when you're an artiste, I suppose, you're not just paying your own bills. You're also paying your manager's bills. Yeah. You're paying your management's bills. So... Uh, sometimes it's not as easy as uh, picking your own roles. Um, Sean Yu, I don't think will ever finish doing his time. Um, they tried the, <laughs> they tried the try the lead actor thing already. He's tried the idol thing. He's tried the whole leading his own movie thing and didn't work out. So that was his that was his kind of attempt to get out there, but it hasn't worked. So but you know, it right do, now it's you know, it, he's a hit or miss. It really depends on the script with him for me. I mean, I look at something like um, Just One Look. And that's one of my, you know, as going back to the times I did uh, my, my top Hong Kong films, that's one of my top Hong Kong films. And he's yeah. a lead in that, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a pop idol at the, you know, one of his first things he did, but he was great in that. And I think that when he gets certain characters and he gets certain roles, you know, he can pull it off. But stuff like this, it's just, I'm, I mean, this is just, I don't know, it's like going backwards for him in a sense. Yeah, I don't... I doubt that anyone would go. I think he he's okay. You know, I think it's okay for him to be in this film because people won't. He knows that people won't pick the film to go watch him. You know what I mean? So I don't think his career will be hurt that much by a film that people won't go to watch for him. People people go to watch. You know, the and to be fair, he's he's just yeah. credited as as a sort of a special guest appearance. Right. Um, when when the credits come up, but when I saw that, I thought, okay, he's gonna be in it for like you know two minutes or something. But he's actually got a pretty sizable role throughout mm. the film, and mm. you know, and part of me is wondering if he just kind of put that in there because he wasn't really, you know, excited about the film or, or wasn't didn't really want his name associated directly as sort of a, you know, a headline person in it, or he didn't um, got paid enough to be to be on the. He only got paid enough to be in the special guest star yeah, space maybe. there. Uh, no, I think I think that um, Sean Yu is is you know I think we agree that Sean Yu is a very good actor. Uh, he's actually not a bad actor. I think he's one of the more charismatic young male actors. You know, certainly more than say someone like Edison Chan. Uh, uh, and yeah, I would like to see him get better roles. But right now, I'm kind of happy to see where he is. You know, he's getting lead roles in smaller films like you know uh, Love in a Puff. And he's getting good supporting roles, like in uh, uh, *Random Assassins*. At least he's no longer doing, you know, the eight eight movies a year shtick anymore. We're just taking any projects he can get. You know, I think he's doing more interesting roles, and you know, even this one little misstep, I think, won't hurt him too much. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think this will hurt him. I just think he's better than this. He's. He's. I. I think he's moved beyond it. Um, but you know, maybe baby needs a new pair of shoes. You never know. Uh, subtitle of the week come for me comes from this film. And it is a classic line that, it's not a great subtitle, but I just, I wrote it down thinking, you know, this is like in every ghost horror film. Somebody at some point says it and nobody ever listens. But one of the characters basically said, I don't want to go back to that hotel. And of course they do. Um, <laughs> you know, the mo- we wouldn't have a movie. Uh, but there was, there was one moment of intelligence that shone through uh, in that line. And so I thought I'd highlight that. Right up next, we have the Japanese film, Confessions, which unfortunately I have not been able to get out and see. So I'm going to throw the ball over to Mr. Ma, and he's going to tell us all about it. Yeah, sure. Um, Confessions is um, kind of a surprise hit this year in Japan. Uh, it's a very dark story. It's based on a, a hit novel uh, from 2008, uh, also an award-winning novel that kind of blew uh, a lot of its readers away because it's a very dark story. Um it's about uh, a, a a teacher, a female teacher who's uh, played by Takako Matsu, 
um, oh, much is Takako. It depends on how you how you like to say names. Um, and she usually plays um, she usually plays kind of dramatic, low key dramatic roles or in romantic comedies. So this is kind of a breakthrough for her because she's playing a very very dark character here. She plays a teacher uh, of a middle school class, uh, about thirty seven people, and um, on the last day uh, as a teacher with the class. She she makes a confession. She says that uh, her daughter's been killed. She's a single mother. Her daughter's been killed. Um, even though the police have ruled an accident, she knows that two of her students did it, and those people are in the room. And and then she has started essentially her revenge against the two students. That sets off um, a very uh, kind of a I wouldn't say it's a film conversation. It's more like a character stu- or character studies. So uh, from that thirty-minute confession, kind of sets off this um, multiple point of view kind of story where you see different pieces of the story from different characters' points of view and different points of uh, voiceover, and you you slowly discover their kind of inner their inner turmoil of what what is troubling them or what what caused them to do it. Um, the initial story seems like a kind of a mystery, kind of who done it, but uh, in fact, you kind of you already know who the killers are uh, twenty minutes in. Um. So so it's, it becomes kind of why done it and how these killers um face the the the, the teacher's uh revenge plan. Uh, the director is uh, Nakashima Tatsuya, who made um Kamikaze Girls, uh, also Memories of Matsuko, and uh, he last directed uh, Paco and the Magic Book. Uh, Paul, I believe you say you've seen Kamikaze Girls. Yes, very good movie. Uh, yes. One of my favorite from Japan, in fact. Yes, so you kind of know that the way this director tells story, he has a commercial and MTV background, so you know he uses um, very a very strong visual sense to tell a story, uh, a, lot of, a lot of MTV-style editing, a lot of uh, things that are in your face all the time. Um, but unlike his previous films, he kind of takes out all the colors. Um, it's no longer an explosion of colors. Uh, it's a very gray-white palette that you see uh the aesthetic is very plain but the, the same kind of uh, very strong editing style and the mtv style is still here in fact that kind of carries the entire film he uses really every bit of experience what he learned to to tell quote unquote tell the story uh and the movie is very much driven by a soundtrack which is very very good um I have the novel, but I haven't read the novel. But from my, from what I've read about the novel, from what I've seen about the novel, from what bits I've read, is that the the entire film runs like a novel. Um, you see, um, they split like they split by the confessions of the characters. So there's about five or six chapters, and the first chapter alone, the opening sequence, the opening confession by uh, the 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 Takagomatsu character runs thirty minutes, and that whole thing is it feels like a 30 minute montage and then the rest of the film also runs like a montage it's different montages it's chapters so uh you could tell kind of what what kind of story he's or what kind of storytelling technique um nakashima is using here um he also wrote the script so he definitely knows what he's doing when he was writing the script i think he already planned out how he's going to shoot the film and everything kind of just came together by the time he put together the film uh the editing and the voiceovers and the script the dialogue itself, even though there's a lot of, you know, the entire voiceover kind of tells a story, a lot of dialogue, but but they all kind of blend in together and, you know, becomes a ride. You're, you're, you're sitting through this ride. You're going in and out. It rarely stops. And I wouldn't say it's fun because there's a lot of um, dark things here. There's very uh, cruel things here going on. The film is categorically in Hong Kong. Um I would say it's a little strong for this film because uh, a lot of the violence are off screen or a lot of the violence are not, you know, graphic. But you know, it's per- it's perfectly understandable because it's kids that are committing these these acts most of it most of the time. Um, as I said before, the performances are, are really good. Um, Takako Matsu, who is the really the only choice I think Nakashima had for the role, she's really good here, kind of toning it down. Um, playing this really dark character, really mean, cynical character, actually, um, who, who once in a while shows her real, real face, her real grieving side, but, but rest of the time, you know, she's scary, she's downright intimidating with her, her resolve to, to pull off the revenge. Um, 
And the kids, the 37 kids, I believe, are uh, chosen uh, from a pool of a thousand applicants, uh, from what I've read. And um, there's two two kids, two the two killers, uh, and also a girl, a sympathetic classmate. Those three girls, those three kids stand out. But the 37 kids all together, they all work. They all really good. They put it a lot in here, and. You know, considering there's a lot of um, scenes with bullying and kids acting mean and kids, you know, acting miserably, essentially. People, you know, really mean characters. You wonder kind of how how these kids kind of, how they get out of the characters after they film. I mean, are they really that professional that they can just hop off the character or are they really reflecting a bit of themselves? Or, you know, you, you kind of wonder what the kids go through after the film or when they're shooting. Um, and all these really powerful things, you know, I, I it's kind of, this film got left me speechless. I've seen it twice already. The first time I saw it was on a plane. The second time I saw it was uh, last week at a theater. And both times just kind of left me stunned because of one, how good the filmmaking is and two, how powerful the story itself is. You know, the twist, even when you see the twist coming, when it delivers, it gives you that kind of, you know, it, it gives you an effect or, or it, it, it makes you respond a certain way, and it really works um, on a cinematic point of uh, cinematic level. On a filmmaking level, it works really well. Um, and if you're really into the story, we get into the story. You know, it, it's kind of like the equivalent of a punch in the gut. It hits you that hard, and it's uh, to me, it's really one of the best films of the year. Um, I think it's kind of the film that you know, bring it back to East Green to Hong Kong films. I, I think there's a type of filmmaking that. Andrew Lau wanted to do the MTV director like Andrew Lau wanted to do, but he doesn't have the talent. He doesn't. He's not. He doesn't have the talent that Nakashima Tetsuya does. Um, I think as much as I like uh, Kamikaze Girls and Memories of Matsuko, both very ambitious films, um, both good films. I think Confessions really elevates his brand of, of filmmaking to a to a really new level, mm. and um, I think this really is something that that that. Um, not everybody, not everyone can sit through. Um, I know that Paul, you have certain reservations about about seeing the film uh, before. Uh, I'm not sure if what I, my review will 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 convince you or or. Well, I've, or I've got a couple of questions because sure. as, as I said, Kamikaze Girls, you know, I, I loved it and I've seen it multiple times. Um, but from your description and and from what I've seen in the trailer, the film seems to be. In in some way similar to Battle Royale, except less comic bookish. I mean, Battle Royale was a Category Three, and it was Category Three because it was violence and students killing each other. But in and, and it was like this whole class, and you you basically had a core group of students who were sort of like the main actors as as the class got like whittled down towards the end. But it, you know, it, it's this idea of, you know, still representing ideas about school bullying and competition and all the problems, the social problems that are going on in Japan, um, even through to today. But it was, for me, that was a fun film because it was like so over the top and it was so much like a manga or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, the idea seems a bit more serious and a bit more dark. So that that gives me pause reservation. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, hang on. My mom's trying to buzz in um and so the there's that issue the other issue is you talk about this film being told in terms of perspectives and when i hear you talk about it that way it reminds me a little bit of uh the kurosawa film rashomon um so is it is it trying to be like a rashomon and and trying to tell like you know, a, a similar event from different perspectives to show that there are different ways of seeing things happen, or is it, is it, you know, is it sort of recopying that formula? Um, first question is that you know about Battle Royale it is definitely not nothing like Battle Royale. It is not an action film. Uh, it is not a because what Battle Royale takes that that whole you know it it uses a kind of Aurelian style action film and. And and tries to say something beneath what's superficial or what's on the surface about you know school bullying and 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 um, I guess a social hierarchy in a classroom and among students and things like that. But no, it, confessions really bring that to the surface. It it's really about it's literally about school bullying. It is about how these kids 
treat each other. It is very much on a hyper reality in terms of um, filmmaking style, but but the issues that these kids face, you know, overprotective mother, monster parents, uh, so to speak, um, kids bullying, kids using cell phones to pressure each other into bullying. These are all literally on in the film. This is what the film's about. It's what very it's very very re- the things that are used in the film. The issues are very real, and the way they're portrayed are very real. But the way that that Nakashima presents them visually is very much a hyper reality, and that's the only that's the only thing that takes it out of reality is the way that Nakashima presents them. Um, but the issues and the actions they're very real, and and those things really do happen. And there's no really symbolic thing to represent them. They're just there. Um, so it's definitely not an action film. It's very much a drama. Although it is edited like an MTV drama. So um, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't run, it never really kind of stops and let you, um, it doesn't let you sink in things. It does kind of move along in a very, uh, very steady pace. Um, so you're really literally on a ride, but these issues are still there. Um, it is definitely not an action film. It's very much a drama. So there's no, uh, the violence is also very real, but again, the way that Nakashima presents them visually, uh, he uses editing, kind of, he kind of doesn't show them graphically, even though the violence, you know, definitely know what's going on. You see some blood, things like that. You see the acts, but, you know, they're not graphically shown. You know, you don't have blood splattering everywhere, like in Battle Royale, and the kids don't kill each other. Um, I didn't want to go, go I don't want to go into spoilers that much, but the death can't, the, the body count isn't really that high, and every death in the movie matters. So uh, you definitely know, you know, it's definitely not, doesn't definitely, it definitely doesn't take the issue to uh, to a level where you, you're allowed to have fun with it or anything like that. That's why I kind of hesitate to say the film is fun, even though it is a ride. Um, as for the, um, what was the second question about? The perspectives and... Yeah, perspectives. Definitely not a Rashomon story because the story moves forward, but it just moves forward from different perspectives. For example, if... if um, the first thirty minutes, you got you got Takako Matsu telling the story, or she's telling you what's her background and what she's going to do, and she's telling her class this and that, and then that's that's the the setup of the whole plan, and then as the plan or as as her plan goes along, you see different points of view. First, you see you know characters explaining earlier what's happened or what they're thinking or what's happening to them now, and then they also do things, and the story moves along. Then it goes to a certain different perspective. But it's a different part of the story. So imagine like four parallel roads and and you're just going on different roads as you're going down the road. You're just taking these four different parallel roads, but they never they rarely repeat at the same place. Um, so the story isn't I wouldn't say it's linear, but it definitely doesn't it's not like Russia one where it returns to the same place. It's kind of long linear storytelling, I suppose. I guess that's that's the best way to to explain it. I mean, that's that's kind of the new kind of I guess MTV style filmmaking. You know, nonlinear editing, the um, different perspective, things like that. And that's I wouldn't call the style itself refresh refreshing, or I wouldn't say the style is original because MTV's been around for a long time, and and the way Nakashima makes films have been around for a long time, and um, but the way it works is just how well it all blends together and how well that, you know, this film could have failed really spectacularly. It could have been, you know, Andrew Lau style movie. It could have been like Initial D. It could have been, um, there are many, many ways for it to fail. You know, it could have tried to take on too much or too serious, too serious for its own good. But it all works together really well. And and as stark as it is, and as powerful as it is, and as, as, as miserable as about this going to make you feel at the end of the film, you will, after you watch it, you can't deny having been affected by it. That's how good it, it it affects you, and you know, and it's hard to deny that you've been affected by it. And, and it's, um, but at the same time, you can't. It's hard to say that you didn't enjoy it because you know it really does let it really does take you along on this ride. Um, I could say I go on and on about this film, but um, I think I just stop it and just say you know it's not for everyone. But if you from listening to this, if you think you might have a slight bit of interest in it, I say definitely listen listen to your to your heart, you know, so to speak, and give the film a chance. It really is one of the best films of the year.
You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right. It's time to move on to our West Screen news for this week. Not a whole lot of news this week, just a short article I came across over on um, msn.com in a segment they call Point uh, Counterpoint, where they are debating the 3D issue, uh, an issue that we ourselves have been spending some time on uh, debating. And basically they have two of their critics, um, Jim Emerson and Frank Frank uh, Paiva, if I say his name correctly, um, arguing both for and against 3D. And, uh, you know, I'm still kind of in the against camp uh, for the most part with a lot of the things that they'll be doing. And they, one of the things they mention is like uh, the new Jackass movie in, in 3D. And um, they talk about, but they also talk about some other things. They talk about, for example, Captain EO. Um, I don't know if you ever got a chance to see Captain EO, Kevin. Um, that was no. the Michael Jackson uh, short film that used to be run at Epcot, and it was a 3D, it was really sort of the first 4D experience. I mean, now you go to any, almost any Disney, and they've got all these sort of 4D experiences where you put on the glasses and there's a 3D film, but they've also got smoke and the seats, like, you know, spit out water at certain points or will rumble. Um, but Captain EO was a partnership that they had done with uh, Michael Jackson and... I think uh, Jim Henson, if I remember correctly, I think he did some of the puppets in that. And it was really amazing. I remember really, really liking it, and it had really good music. Um, but th- again, you know, it's th- th- this was a long time ago. The technology's changed. And so the, the, these guys get into, you know, the pros and cons. One of them's arguing for, the other's arguing against. And they bring up some good issues. that didn't. Nothing really changed my mind uh, in terms of the issues they they were talking about, um, you know, they've talked, they talk about things we've already covered, Clash of the Titans, Avatar, and, and other things, um, you know, we're getting, I think we're getting Saw in 3D, the next mm-hmm. Saw film, I saw a trailer for that, uh, actually watching the next movie we're about to review, which I thought was kind of weird, um, <laughs> that they would have that trailer on there. But yeah, that's, they're, they're selling that as the whole 3D experience, and it just makes me wonder, how these films like, like the child's eye are going to end up playing when they get to home video, or if the idea is that they're 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 expecting the technology to filter over into the home and we're all going to buy into it. And we talked about that last week. All right. So for our West Screen film this week, we are talking about Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul. Um, so this is the latest film to come from uh, Zack Snyder as he tries to take on 3D animation. And this is, I guess you'd classify it as a fantasy adventure. And basically tells the plot of a young barn owl um, who ends up uh, with his brother, uh, barn owl, his name is, is Soren, and his brother Claude actually, they end up falling out of their tree and they're quickly kidnapped by uh, some evil owls, and they are taken off um, to the evil owl camp to be turned into slaves. And uh, it's at this point that uh, they find out that, uh, you know, the evil owl army is building up um, an army of owls to battle against the guardians um, who live in this faraway place, a legendary place called uh, Gahul. So Sorin, with with some other owl friends that he makes while he's imprisoned, uh, designs decides to set out and find the guardians to help stop this growing evil um, that is being led by an ancient owl called Metalbeak, uh, and his brother Clude decides that he's going to stay behind. And uh, he's not, he's going to, he, he likes sort of the ideology behind this growing army that Metalbeak has, has raised. And so we've got the two brothers who end up, uh, you know, at odds at some point. And it's an adventure story as Soren and friends try to find 
uh, the, the legendary guardians, and hopefully they can find the guardians and save the day. And, you know, that's that's the story in a nutshell. It's really simple. It's a lot of themes that you've seen done time and time again in just about every hero story. I mean, a lot of what I was seeing, I felt like I was back in, in uh, you know, high school reading Joseph Campbell and his theories about the hero with many faces, kind of an idea, and this whole idea of, you know, the hero's journey. It's all here. Again, I think the animation and the effects were really top-notch um some 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 really nice visual style uh the owl battles you know they look straight like you know they're straight from 300 uh it's, it's like Zack snyder took owls and then some of the art direction and mashed them up and spit them out uh kind of like an owl pellet right um at the same time what you've got is you've got uh um some story logic problems though um one of the things that really bugs me is they do this a lot in animations is they present this idea, okay, animals can talk. Um, so here you have owls that can talk and then later we learn uh, other animals can talk. So there's a snake character who's sort of like this matron and she can talk. She can talk with the owls. But then we see other animals that can't talk. There's a, there's a dog that, or a, I guess it's a Tasmanian devil that attacks the owls early on that doesn't seem to talk. Um, there's a little bird that the owls have to go after and catch who also doesn't talk for whatever reason. It just chirps like a bird. So it, it's never really clear as to why some animals can talk and other animals can't. Um, you know, and again, this is a film for kids. So they're looking, they're, they're not, you know, if you're, you're thinking this deeply, like I'm obviously doing, you're, you're thinking too deeply about the film. Um, probably not a good thing to do, but it's just one of those things that I think they're not really considering uh, some of the way they're setting up the world here. Um, I really do think they needed more distinction among the owls, though. I mean, Soren was a very typical sort of, you know, knight or Jedi or paladin, you know, the sort of the, the young apprentice aspiring to be a great warrior. Uh, some of his companions, I think, they could have spent more time with the companion owls and and focusing on some of the things that they could do that were different from Soren, because, you know, Soren was sort of the main focus. I, I think it was entertaining, probably good for older kids. Uh, young ones, maybe not so much, because there was a kid in the screening I was at, I guess he was like four or five sitting right behind me, and he was just not into the film. He didn't seem to like it. He kept saying he was scared. He was bored, he was hungry, he wanted to go, he just did not want to be there. He was not really getting engaged with it. So I'm wondering if, you know, you you know, this is a film, the narrative and and the style of it will appear appeal to, you know, maybe preteens or kids who are a little bit older who will get more engaged with actually, actually what's going on. The one thing that shocked me, that surprised me though, was they brought back an old song from the 80s that I that I love and from a band that I listen to to death in the 80s and 90s called Dead Can Dance, sort of a, a, a gothic fusion band, I guess you'd call them. Uh, they they kind of do gothic instrumental music. And so they have this song, The Host of the Seraphim, really good song of theirs. And lo and behold, I'm sitting there watching, you know, these out this owl flying through flames, slow motion kicks in, and then suddenly this this becomes the song that gets played. And I was just thinking, wow, they're bringing back a blast from the past. So I, I'd say, you know, if, you, if you've got young ones, you know, kids getting ready to go into teenage years is good for them. Adults, maybe you be a little bit bored by this. Um, but in general, not a bad film. Kevin, your thoughts? I, I think I liked it a little less than you did. Um, I know you enjoy the owl fights. Um, for me, I thought it was silly. The owl on owl action. Um, the way he's... You know, Zack Snyder does the the whole uh, 300 thing where, you know, he does a little less than usual, which is something that I can give him credit for. But, you know, he's still relying too much on the whole, you know, you, slowing down film can give you impact kind of type of storytelling, uh, kind of filmmaking. Um, you know, you have owls wearing metal beaks and you got the whole uh, thing where Gizzard replaces the force, you know, except, you know, saying... Uh, you're on the dark side of the forest. It's so much sounds so much cooler than you're on the dark side of the gizzard. <laughs> Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> um, so uh, to me, Use the whole the, the whole... gizzard, Luke. 
Use the gizzard, Luke. <laughs> may the gizzard be with you. I think at one point, really, almost there's something like, may the gizzard be with you or something like that. I'm not, like, the dark desire of the gizzard. It's so silly. You know, to me, gizzards sound like something I would eat. You know, it's not something that I would use to fight. Um, so, not the owl action doesn't really work for me, but I really like the first half of the film where they're not going into the whole gizzard thing where... Um, you see the hero story. He's trying to find the guardians and this this you know ragtag group of misfits kind of thing. Uh, the, the 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 hedgehog who foretells the future. Um, you know I liked it. I liked that first part. It was perfectly fine, even though I did sleep through parts of it. You know because it's me, um, not because of the film. Um, you know, and then when it gets to the guardians. Um, the whole thing about Soren being trained to become one of the Guardians, that's really an important part of the film, but then um, it got kind of cut short because of the, the, the so-called um, the training sequence, the training montage, which you know, I, I think maybe Zack Snyder was intentionally cutting it short um, to get to the final battle, but or to avoid the cliche, but there's a reason why cliches are cliches, because they work and finding out more about how Sorn becomes this incredible warrior for the Guardians. I think that's important. I think the training stuff is important. Learning more about the Guardians, the characters, um, are important. Um, but it, it kind of underwhelmed on that end. Um, but with that said, the animation is great. There's a really, really great scene with the um, the birds flying, or the owls flying in a storm as part of the training. And uh, if it wasn't for the animated Oh, you would think that the the way the rain works and the and the thunder and the clouds, you would think it's real. And it was a great, great, really well done anime scene. Um, but that's really for me. That's really what it has going for it. It has just really, really top notch narration, uh, top notch animation. It really is good. Um, I think you're right that it's uh, more for older kids. I I think it's a little violent because you still got the you know, I was slicing each other up with their gizzard and their metal beaks and their slow motion and things like that, even though there's no blood. Um, I'm not sure why the younger kid is a little was uh, impatient of it, even though I'm, uh, it is a little scary for them, especially the um, there's whole whole um, thing that the evil Nazi owls use to 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 uh, succumb the, the the naysayers. That's kind of a little creepy, even for adults. I mean, there's a lot of um, because it is based on a series of books. Um, it does set itself up for a sequel. Uh, even has a Shakespearean style uh, relationship thing going on in it. Uh, but you know, I'm just not all that into the sequel potential because it really does tell you essentially tells you what happens in the second movie if it does get made. Um, so. But I felt like it would be jumping to a sequel without filling in the gaps in the first film, and it would be kind of premature. And I, and right now, in its present form, I wouldn't be really much um, interested in a sequel. <laughs> Right. That's our West Green film for the week. Now let's move on to comments. Uh, we just got one comment from Tinan Lau, also known as Gary, um, who mentioned from our show last time on Reign of Assassins that uh, it appears that the Korean release of the film has been cut with a few scenes missing, and the Korean actor's dubbed uh, voice has been replaced by his actual voice speaking in Mandarin. Uh, and he has a link uh, in the comments that uh, says it's in Chinese, but the article about that uh, can be read online, so we'll leave that link up for uh, people who can read Chinese to go over and read that. Um, kind of interesting, you know. It's th this is what makes me say, if they're gonna if they're gonna bother to record sound, 
and on and and in some dubs they're gonna make the choice to actually leave the guys dub in. Why not just let everybody do their own acting? And this raises a point which I think you were twittering about a little bit earlier, where um, certain film awards are not going to recognize actors who are dubbed. Is that right? Yeah, um, the Asia Pacific Screen Awards does not recognize. So, um, so for example, Andy Lau's performances in China, um, pretty much any Hong Kong actors, even to maybe some Taiwan actors, any performances in a mainland produced film would, you know, if that was the one version they sent over to the committee, it wouldn't be qualified. And but then here's the thing: is that mainland films again all need to have standard so-called standard accent Mandarin and the problem is that Hong Kong actors and Taiwan actors just cannot get that accent down you'd rather have them act naturally than rather rather than have them try to force themselves into giving off a Mandarin accent or the right Mandarin accent for China and so dubbing is really is the only way to go to to get the right performances without here, having to make them see here's the thing aren't most films in I mean all the films in Hong Kong play at least with Chinese subtitles. That's right. So I, I'm assuming, I, I, I've only seen a couple of films in the mainland, but I'm assuming all the films in the mainland also play with Chinese subtitles. Actually, I have not heard any confirmation of that. I've asked my girlfriend, she doesn't remember. Um, I think um, maybe in Shenzhen, films in Cantonese would probably be in Chinese subtitles, but I've heard that films in Mandarin are not subtitled. I mean, if it's if it's the problem that the actors don't, you know, aren't able to act in a standard Putonghua dialect, then just let them do, you know, Cantonese, and then just put subtitles up there. I That's mean, the thing. It's one dialect. China only allows one dialect. China only allows Mandarin in their films. Um, the the Cantonese, uh, the Cantonese rule is an exception that they make for the Guangdong province. But everywhere else, because China's Chinese government's position is that they are promoting one central dialect and that's Putonghua hmm. and that is the that's the only way they could go even they they you know Crazy Stone I think they that kind of set a precedent um, that movie was successful partly because of the way that the the local um, where's the shot um, Chengdu the Chengdu accent you know gave it a certain charm but after that uh, as the government always does they 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 tighten it up they wouldn't allow much local dialects in films anymore. Now it's all about, especially big blockbusters, it's all about having that standard accent of Mandarin. So when, you know, a lot of these, again, it's easier to blame government, but we're going to blame government for this, is that because there is a need, uh, a bureaucratic need, a, a, a legal need, uh, a cultural need, whatever it is, that there must be a standard, it must be in a standard style of Mandarin and that is one of the fa few factors that these actors are dubbed. And again, you know, even since the 80s, 90s, um, uh, films haven't been done. Uh, Hong Kong produced films, Chinese produced films, even to an extent Taiwan produced films have not been shot either. You're not shot or have not been mastered or been made for theatrical with sync sound. Just because, again, it just, quick, it just makes the whole process quicker. Post, you know, doing sound post production may cost more money, but it just ends up, you know, doing everything in post production just ends up getting the film out faster, and that's what film companies care about more than you know, oh, that's whether things sound good or not. All right, I think that's going to wrap things up for our show this week. Uh, as always, you can find our show notes over at our website www.concast.com. And if you'd like to stop by iTunes and leave us a review there, we'd be happy to hear from you. If you leave us a five-star review, that somehow helps us in the ratings and getting the show promoted through iTunes, and hopefully some other people can stumble across it. You can keep up with us on Twitter, and we've got uh, my Twitter account is over at the website, and you can follow Mr. Ma at his account at Twitter slash TheGoldenRock as one word. If you'd like to leave us comments, you can leave us comments on the site, or you can email us direct at the show at uh, concast at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to, you can even post us over a uh, short MP3 file with a question, and we'll play that here on the show for you. Um, and you can also keep up with Mr. Ma and his daily musings at various points on the web. Where are some of those points that people can find some of your writing, sir? 
Yeah, you can find my work, uh, my blog on uh, com slash blog slash the golden rock. That's in one word. Uh, today on Twitter, I kind of previewed some of the stuff that I have planned for the blog. That includes a daily entry of an upcoming uh, Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Also, uh, I will be previewing this year's uh, Hong Kong Independent uh, Film Festival. Uh, so you can look forward to those. I also write weekly reviews on um, for English language films released here in Hong Kong uh, and UA cinemas uh, for www.yp.com.hk. This week I will I will be reviewing uh, Let Me In, the remake of the Swedish vampire film. All right, and we should be back next week to talk about the new Hong Kong film. Perfect Wedding, starring Miriam Young and Raymond Lamb. And uh, I'm not sure if there are other films that will be coming up between now and then. Anything that you can think of that you know? Uh, quite a few Japanese releases. Uh, I think Bayside Shakedown 3 comes out on the 28th. Um, 21st, How uh, this week, however, we it's uh, more kind of uh, limited releases. Again, yeah. we have... Um, which I'm call it, uh, let me in. We have uh, the Zac Efron film, uh, Charlie Saint Cloud, and, uh, and you got, got the film festival. So yes, we also got the film festival and the Taiwanese film uh, Seven Days in Heaven, which has been nominated for a ton of awards at this year's uh, Golden Horse uh, Awards. So I'm hoping I'll have time to check that out uh, one time because I have been wanting to watch this film ever since it played the HK. IFF this year so um, I hope to watch it and maybe come back and talk about this All right. and if not you can always watch Super Typhoon oh of course that's for sure so yeah until next time we will as always wish you good viewing and we will see you then see you next time everybody And that's all our news. It's a slow week. What are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Pop so, Super Typhoon. That's yeah. That's what we're going to do. Super Typhoon. Also begs the question, you know, if it's a sequel, are they going to call it If You Are the Two? <laughs> you know, is, If You Are the One Part Two, isn't it? Like, if I, You're Still the One? Yeah. That, that sounds like a... <laughs> sounds like a song. Sounds like a song, yeah. You're still the One? No, I'm sorry. Not going to sing. Not going to sing. <laughs> Uh, so until then, I will be wondering why uh, Legend of the Guardians did not have Gerard Butler in it saying, This is Gahuli! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or why didn't the owls have six packs? Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, six claws instead. Yeah.